I invite you to open your, open your copy of God's Word with me this morning to 1 Peter <clears throat> chapter 1, verses uh, 13 through 21 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, if you're using one of the, uh, the black Bibles, the pew Bibles, one that's under your seat or under the seat in front of you, it should be on page 1028, page 1028. Uh, there the, if you're uh, unfamiliar or, or new to reading the Bible, the large numbers on the page are the chapter numbers, the smaller uh, numbers throughout the text, those are the verse numbers. So we're in chapter 1, uh, verses 13 through 21. We, uh, we have this weekend the privilege of celebrating uh, a great and uh, wonderful holiday that is the beginning of college football season. And y'all thought I was going to say Labor Day. Uh, people all across the nation uh, stopped doing everything yesterday to sit down and watch college football all day long. Where division, the first week of the football season, where Division One teams play teams like New Mexico State so that they can start their season one and zero. I'm going to get some booze because there's some Aggie fans in here, right? Yeah, exactly. But hey, we went. My uh, my dad and I we went to the uh, Lobo game last night and watched them stomp all over one of those Division Two teams, and uh, and it was fun. At the beginning of every football season, though, every football team, and, and this goes the same for basketball, baseball, um, hockey, uh, that's a game that's played on ice with sticks and a little rubber plastic thing. Um, every team at the beginning of the season has a goal. That one goal is to win, and win often. Win all of the games. I don't know a single team that goes into a game uh, planning to lose that game. Goal is to win, but in order to win, there's work that needs to be done. You've got to prepare beforehand, spend time in practice and two-a-days, which they, I just heard, learned that this week, the NCAA eliminated two-a-day practices for collegiate athletes, so make, that, make of that what you will. But anyway, so practices and, and time spent in film room and uh, in the weight room, getting ready, preparing themselves for the game that they might win the, the goal, but, but it's not enough to just have a goal that we want to win and to prepare for. You've also got to, when game day comes, execute. You've got to work out the game plan. Right? So there's preparation, there's a goal of winning, and then there's execution of, of the game plan in sports at, at all different levels. Today, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, we're going to see and read from God through his servant, the Apostle Peter, a goal for all believers. A a thing uh, for which to strive for, to set your focus on, and that is holiness. In verse 15, Peter's going to say to us, be holy because your Father in heaven is holy. That's the goal. There are actually three commands that govern this passage of Scripture. One gives us the goal, be holy, but there's another command that tells us how to prepare for that goal. It's in verses 13 and 14. We'll see that in a moment. And a third goal that helps us, or a third command that helps us to know how to persist in the game plan, how to pursue holiness, knowing that it's our goal, knowing what we've prepared for, how to go forward and do that as a Christian. Having said that, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. As we've done the last several weeks, uh, out of reverence for the reading of God's word, would you please stand with me? The Holy Spirit inspiring Peter, he writes this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Heavenly Father, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we come to you this morning submitting ourselves to your word. This is what you have spoken, and because it is you that has spoken to it, it means something to us. And God, we seek to obey it this morning. You speak to us this morning through your word. God, use me as a faithful messenger of the word that you have written of the gospel that is to us in Jesus. And Holy Spirit, you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts that are softened to respond in faith and obedience to what you're calling us today. Lord Jesus, we ask and pray all of this in your precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So here we go. Peter's call to the church, calling them to be holy, commanding them to be holy. And he begins with, in, uh, in verse 13, uh, this word, this linking word, therefore, right? He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought. This linking word, therefore, uh, links verses 13 through 21, the passage we read uh, just now, to the verses that we've been looking at the last two weeks, verses 1 through 12. Peter's saying this, therefore, and we go back and we look at what he's just said, which is uh, this in, in sort of a nutshell version. Therefore, because you have been called to salvation, verses 1 and 2, through, Je- through faith in Jesus, and because you've been saved to an imperishable inheritance that God is keeping for you, uh, waiting to uh, reveal to you perfectly in eternal life, then, essentially, live holy lives. Because of everything we know about what God has done in eternity past and what he is doing to save us and what he is keeping us for in our salvation. Therefore, live holy lives. We do well this morning to remember that this call, this command to holy living is not by any means separate from our salvation. It's not like holiness as a Christian, right? Godly living, Christ-like living, and salvation are two separate things. They're actually inextricably linked. You, You cannot do one without the other. And the one that comes first is salvation. You are saved first. First, you repent of your sins. You trust Jesus. You give your life to him as Lord and Savior. And then God, through his spirit in you, enables you to live a holy life. We would be right in saying that our salvation then is the foundation. It's the spring for living a godly life, for living like Christ. The central command of this passage is in verse 15. Be holy as Peter says, but he, but Peter actually, like I said before, gives us three different commands, three different imperatives in this passage that should guide our reading and guide our understanding of this call to holy living. So let's look at the first in verse 13. Peter first commands us to prepare for holy living. And we do this by setting our hope on salvation. 
Prepare for holy living by setting your hope on salvation. Let's look first at the imperative there in verse 13. Peter says this. He says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. The imperative, the command in this verse is set your hope. That's hard for us to see in our English translations because in English we don't inflect. There's not like a, a visual construction of words that show us that they are imperatives quite like there is in Greek. In Greek, these imperatives, these command words stick out because of uh, just how the word is constructed. So in English, I'm going to, in our English Bibles, I'm going to try to draw our attention to these commands more clearly. So if you're one of those people that likes to mark in your Bible, take a pencil or pen and, and circle, underline, draw a box around that command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. At this point, immediately, we should be reminded of the living hope. Peter says, set your hope. And that takes us back to verse, uh, verses, uh, verse 3, where uh, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Peter says, set your hope in the living hope. That is both your present salvation, that you are saved now by faith in Christ, and your future salvation, the, the resurrection, right, that is coming at, at the end of days, at judgment. This is a call from the apostle to look forward with confidence at what is to come. Set your hope on what is coming. This is how we prepare for holy living and for godly lives, by looking ahead to the finish line. How do you know what you want to do or how are you going to achieve a goal without looking forward to that goal? And so Peter says, look forward to what is at the end. Look forward to, your, to the resurrection and to eternal life with Jesus. That is how you begin to prepare for holy living. Set your hope there. And then he gives us some instruments for fulfilling or for obeying this command. The command is set your hope, but we do it by first preparing our minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. Literally in Greek, Peter says, girding the loins of your mind. Now that's a fun image, isn't it? Now, we, uh, if, had we lived 2,000 years ago, this image of girding the loins of our mind would be very obvious to us, but we don't wear tunics today, so I'll try to demonstrate as best I can. When one would, when a man would gird his loins in ancient days, he would do so this way. So the normal pattern, normal uh, dress of men was a, a tunic, a long sort of robe-like flowing garment, and often with a belt around his waist to kind of keep it all together. But the bottom of the garment was, was flowing. But if a man needed to do some work in a field, or he was about to engage in battle, or fight somebody, or he was going to run a race, or engage in some sort of physical activity, he would proceed to gird his loins. Uh, and so what he would do is he would take the, the excess uh, uh, fabric from his tunic, he would kind of pull it up uh, it, from behind in between his legs, and pull it up and tuck it into uh, the belt of his tunic, thus girding his loins. And now he's prepared for action. He's ready for work. His garments are are not going to get in his way. Similar to the same process that football players go through in putting on pads and helmet and jersey, getting ready for the game, preparing themselves for action, putting on work gloves and jeans and work shoes to work in the yard or to do some manual labor around the home. Peter says, setting our hope on the glory of the resurrection requires that we have a mind that is clear of distraction and ready for work. Girding up the loins of your mind, prepare your head for thinking rightly about holiness. And then he gives us a second instrument, which is closely related to preparing your minds for action. He says, being completely sober minded. 
This is not altogether different from girding up the loins of your mind. I think it's just a similar way of saying the same thing. But Peter here is calling believers to be prepared for action, to be thinking clearly. The idea here is that Christians should maintain a clear mind that you might focus rightly on the grace of God and the hope of the resurrection. These things may not be done in the mind of someone who is unprepared or whose thinking is clouded by intoxicating substances or intoxicating uh, idolatries or intoxicating ideologies. Alcohol and illicit drugs are not the only things that cloud our minds and keep us from thinking clearly, from being sober-minded. Idolatries, ideologies that are opposed to the gospel of Jesus also cloud our thinking. The old song goes, be careful little eyes what you see, be careful little ears what you hear, right? The the influences that we allow into our life change the way that we think. And so think about how you're influencing your mind by what you see and what you hear and the things that you engage in. In doing those things, are you helping yourself to be completely sober-minded, to prepare your mind for action, that you might set your hope on the glory of the resurrection in preparation for living a holy life? What does this mean for us, preparing our minds for action, being sober-minded, setting our hope? I think it means this today, that you must learn to see the world, Christian, through the gospel. You must learn to see the world through the gospel. Living in a Christ-centered, countercultural way requires a radical change in your worldview. That word, worldview, is not one that maybe you use often in, uh, in your daily speech, and it means exactly what the two components of the, wor- of the word say, worldview. It's how you view the world around you, how you interpret the, uh, the things that are going on in your life, the circumstances around you, the things that people say, the things that people do. Peter is calling believers who, as he has said before, are strangers and exiles. They're sojourners on this earth, weird because of their faith in Jesus. Outsiders from the various cultures and societies in which they find themselves. We are such by, the, by nature of the fact that we trust and follow Jesus as Lord. But following Jesus is in every way counter-cultural. In every way. Culture says, look out for yourself. Take care of number one. Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. The world around us tells us that, 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 that what matters most is health and wealth and comfort, ease in this life. But Jesus instructs us saying, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. Our present culture says to just follow your heart, find your, your own way to God. Just you're on a spiritual journey, just go wherever it takes you. But Jesus says, wide is the gate and easy is the way that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Christian, for us to set our hope on the glory of salvation requires a day-by-day commitment and directing of the mind toward that end. Every day, waking up, preparing our minds for action, being sober-minded, and setting our hope on the resurrection. Every day as a believer, reminding yourself, God has saved me from my sin through helping me to trust my life to Jesus who died for me. My hope is not in this life. My hope is in the life I'll have in eternity, face to face with Jesus. That's our morning wake-up call. That's our morning routine. And so with that said, I would encourage you to let the gospel be your warm-up routine to start each day. 
Maybe your warm-up routine in the morning is to get up, get out of bed, get a cup of coffee, flip through Facebook for an hour and a half or whatever that might be. Uh, maybe you do some calisthenics, you do some, um, some, some exercises, you go to the gym. Uh, Lord willing, for many of us, we start our day, or at least at some point early in the day, giving time to the Lord in His Word, submitting ourselves to it. Good athletes have a warm-up routine. They don't just go put on pads and a helmet and run out onto the field and do it. They go through a whole warm-up process of stretching and, 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 uh, and warming up their muscles, getting their bodies and their minds ready for the game that they are about to play. As believers in this world to live holy lives, we can't hope to live holy lives if we don't warm ourselves up for action every single day. Preparing our minds for action, being sober-minded, setting our hope that is ready to be revealed in, the, in, the revel, uh, in, the in our resurrection and in the coming of Jesus. Let the gospel be your warm-up routine every morning. Prepare for holy living by setting your hope on the resurrection. Secondly, Peter instructs us in verses 14 through 16 to pursue holy living by living holy lives. He says, pursue holy living. This is the imperative. This is the command in verse 15. Be holy in all your conduct. If you're marking up the imperatives, the commands as we go, circle that phrase. Be holy. Put a box around that phrase. Be holy to remind yourself that that is the command. And this is an insanely simple command. Is it not? Be holy. Be holy. It's clear. It's direct. What does that mean? In English, the English word holy is the same as the Greek word hagios, the same as the Hebrew word kadosh. It means this, set apart for special use. To be set apart for special use. Or when applied to an individual, someone with a personality, with a will, with emotions, it means to have or display divine moral qualities in contrast with what is normally considered human. To be holy means to act, to think, to conduct yourself like God would. Peter's saying, be set apart, be godly in all of your conduct. If you're thinking ahead and you're thinking about the gospel, you already know that this is an impossible task in our own efforts. We cannot be like God in character on our own. On our own, we're sinful. On our own, our hearts are broken and bent towards sin. On our own, we separate ourselves from God. But in Jesus who became sin for us, who died in our place, taking the penalty of our sin and disobedience against God, we become the righteousness of God, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. In Jesus, you can be holy. In Jesus, by trusting in him, you have been made already positionally holy with God. That is to say, there's now nothing separating you from him. And in the power of Jesus, you can walk in holy living. Peter gives us some conditions for what for the command to be holy. He shows us how we are to do this. One, through obedience. Verse 14, he says, as obedient children. As obedient children, we are to obey our Father, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Obedience is, is re- really relatively easy. It's simply setting aside your will and your desires to do those of another, another person that you perceive to be superior to your own. Obedience is saying, not what I want to do, but what God wants to do, or what my boss tells me to do, or what my parents tell me to do. That is obedience. Obedience to God the Father is saying, God, you know best, so I'll do what you say. That is obedience. Our hearts don't like it. Our hearts don't want to do it, but that's what obedience is. 
God, you know best. Your will is best. I'll do what you say. But then how do we come to know what God's will is? Right? If we know that obedience is doing what God has commanded us to do, and that doing what he's commanded us to do is how we walk in holiness, how do we even know what God's will is? Well, friend, I have an easy answer. Study God's word. These 66 books, this portable library of God's word to humanity has everything in it that you need to know what God's will for your life is. It has everything in it that you need to know about how to know Jesus, trust Jesus to be saved, and how to live a holy life. Know God's will by studying his word. The psalmist in Psalm 119.11 says this, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin, that I might not, if I could translate it this way, be disobedient against you. Your word I've taken, I've hidden it in my heart. I've absorbed it. I've, I've, I've internalized it so that I might know his will, know God's will, and be obedient to it. It's no coincidence then that Peter tells us to be obedient according to Scripture. Look at verse 16. Uh, in verse 15, he gives the command, He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter here is appealing to Scripture for what should be normative and imperative in the life of the believer. It is normal for you, Christian, to be holy because God's word has commanded it. And here, Peter is quoting Leviticus 19.2. Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And several other places in Leviticus where that same phrase turns up. And he takes that command from the Old Testament that was to Israel as they are becoming a people that are going to be uh, ambassadors for God in the world. And now he applies that same command to the church. What is Peter saying? Church, you are the people of God. These commands are for be holy because the Lord, your God, who saved you is holy. So we be holy. We live holy lives by being obedient to God and through his word and Uh, Again, in verse 14, the second half of verse 14, by being reformed, by being changed, Peter says, through nonconformity to the world. As one, he, he, he says it this way, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So as one who puts God's will above your own, seeking to obey it, you're no longer molded to the pattern of form of of your formal sinful living is what Peter's saying. He's using Peter uses the words, the passions of your former ignorance, former ignorance implies it's Peter's way of describing their their previous way of life as nonbelievers. Previously, they lived lives of sin and disobedience against God, unaware of the fact they were without knowledge that they were all the while separated and further separating themselves from the God who created them. But when the knowledge of Christ is had, ignorance is gone. Ignorance is simply that ignorance is not a bad thing. Ignorance is just a lack of knowledge. Peter says, you know something now that you didn't know before you came to have faith in Jesus. The effect is is this. Be obedient to your father by no longer living in the sin you have repented from. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In many ways, our hearts and our minds are like Plato, aren't they? They're shaped by the forces around us. They take on the characteristics, the shapes, the the contours of the most significant influences in our lives. God is saying to us, Here in 1 Peter, be not molded by the sins that you're trying to repent of. Instead, be molded by a different influence, by a better influence, a spiritual influence. 
Interestingly enough, this word conformed that Peter uh, commands us not to be here in 1 Peter 1 is used only two times in all of the New Testament. Once here and once in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, much to the same effect as Peter, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Catch this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The same thing that Peter is saying. Be holy. Know the will of God by having your mind changed. By having the influence of God through the Holy Spirit, through his word, change the way you think about things, change the way you see the world, that your desires, that your passions, that the things you want to do and the things that you actually do will be like Jesus, will be holy. But know this, living in a God-glorifying pursuit of holiness, living holy lives requires real spiritual discipline. It doesn't come easy. Living a holy life is not simple for the Christian. This much is plain to us today. It's obvious that as followers of Jesus, we are to look wholly different from the world. That much is clear. Peter said it. We've seen that Paul said, look different than the world. But this doesn't imply that we separate ourselves from the world and hole up in a bunker until Jesus returns, as some would think. I'll just, if I could just get away from the world and sit in a dark room all by myself, I won't be tempted to sin and then I can live a holy life. If you spend any time in a quiet room by yourself for any, any length of time at all, you know that that's impossible. Unholy thoughts are flowing through our minds all the time. You can't get away from your unholiness. So we don't, it doesn't make sense to then remove ourselves from the world because that's not going to fix our unholiness. But most certainly, this call to be holy, to be set apart, does mean that we live holy lives and in doing so, we stand as a stark contrast to the world around us. So we don't remove ourselves from the influence of the world. Instead, we are influenced by God, not by the world, so that we might stand as a contrast, that we might stand as spiritual influence in the world for God. Let me remind us again, lest we think too much of ourselves, that your pursuit of holiness is not anything that you do to earn anything from God. You can't be better or do better to get better from God. All that you need from God, he's already given to you in Christ as a free gift of his grace. And by trusting in Jesus, you you have all that you will ever have from God. But now you have also a new life, a life that is not lived the way you used to, right? And following sin and pursuing sin, but now living to honor God, to glorify God, that you might be holy. This Work of holy living is inherently hard. We're fighting against our own sinful nature at each uh, moment. But we must pursue this goal of holiness because God has commanded it and he's called us to do it. So then what does that look like for you today? What do you need to do to pursue holiness today? Maybe your pursuit of holiness, holiness means that you need, to, you need to bring your sin of lust into the light. Maybe, brother or sister, you've been struggling with, with sexual immorality and lustful thoughts. And you've been struggling secretly, trying to repent each and every day. But this unholiness is just eating up your life. Maybe today your pursuit of holiness is to bring that out into the light. Tell it to a trusted brother or sister. 
Christian uh, a member of our family of faith. Confess that sin so that you might experience God's forgiveness and his grace. Maybe your pursuit of holiness today uh, means you need to consciously choose to use different language at work or at school. Knowing that there are words, there are jokes, there are ways of speaking that are demeaning to others and most definitely not glorifying to God. Maybe your pursuit of holiness begins with your mouth. Maybe today in pursuing holiness, you need to be honest about a lie that you told to save face or the gossip that you either started or engaged in. You need to seek forgiveness of the one that you've wronged, the one that you lied to, the one that you lied about, the person you gossiped to, the person you gossiped about. You need to confess that sin. You might need to confess feelings of of anger or bitterness that you've been holding on to in secret to the person that you've been holding them against. You might think, Pastor, I I hold those thoughts secretly. I'm not openly bitter. I'm, I'm secretly bitter and angry. Can't I just in secret repent of those things? Can't I just secretly pursue holiness? First of all, let me remind you this, that God is omniscient. He knows all. He sees all. Nothing you do is secret. But I would also remind you of what Jesus said about harboring anger in your heart against someone. Harboring anger and bitterness in your heart against someone, even if in secret, is just as dangerous a sin as murder. Confess your sin, Christian, so you can experience the forgiveness that God gives in Christ. But also confess your sin so you can experience forgiveness from the one that you have wronged. Pursuing holiness is not a work that we do. Certainly is about choices we make. Certainly is about things that we pursue in life. But ultimately, holiness is not about things that we do, but it's a work of God in our hearts, changing our desires, convicting us of sin, showing us where our lives and our will do not match up with His. But pursuing holiness is about choices. It is about you consciously choosing to do different things because you know what God has called you for. You know what He has saved you from. Friend, today you might not be, you might not have ever trusted Jesus in the first place. You have no hope of being holy on your own. Maybe today your pursuit of holiness means that you need to repent of your sin, to turn from your sin in a general sense for the first time and truly trust Jesus as Lord. Let Jesus begin to make you holy by trusting him. You need to give your life and trust to the perfect, holy son of God who was killed on a cross for your unholiness so that you can be made holy and able to love and obey the God who has created you. We prepare for holy living by setting our hope on what is to come. We pursue holy living by obeying the commands of God, by being transformed, conformed by the spirit and the work of God's word in our life. And then third, we persist in holiness. We execute the game plan. We continue in holiness in reverent fear. Here in verses 17 through 21, this is what Peter writes. If you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. The imperative, the command in these verses is found in verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear. So take your pen, your pencil, and 
underline or box those two words, conduct yourselves. Conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your sojourning, through the time of your exile. This is the only command in these last verses, even though our English translations uh, often seem to, to portray many of these things that Peter is saying as commands. But the only single imperative here is to conduct yourselves with fear. And everything ara- uh, else around that command modifies it, further explains it. Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear. Fear is not a word that often we like to use in reference to God in the church. But I think we should. I think it's healthy. Yes, for the one who is in Christ and forgiven, there's no need for terror of God. If you know Jesus, there's no, no need for you to tremble in fear of what God may do to you, how he may judge you. But at the same time, you do need to recognize that God is holy and that God does judge our faithfulness and our obedience to him and that everyone will, as Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verse 5, that everyone will give an account to him who is ready to judge both the living and the dead. For the Christian, fear is played out as holy reverence. It's a humble respect and submission toward the holiness of God. We should, knowing who God is and what he is capable of doing, we should be afraid uh, of his uh, judging ability, knowing that we are uh, sinners in need of a savior. But with hope and and confidence in knowing that we know Jesus, that the price of our sin has been paid, we should still have a humble respect, a humble reverence for the power of God, knowing that he will judge our faithfulness in this world to live holy lives, to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples. So the imperative is that conduct yourselves with fear. But then Peter gives us several aspects of motivation for conducting ourselves in fear. First, motivation of God's holy judgment. Verse 17, he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, God's holy judgment does inspire a reverent fear in us as we await the final day when God will hold every person accountable for their lives, believer and unbeliever. We all will give an account to God for what we've done in life. For the believer, this should inspire us to live in a manner that is pleasing to God with judgment day on the horizon. To live a life looking forward to the day of judgment being a very happy day because we know we have lived obedient lives. Not with fear of what God may say or how he may hold us accountable for unfaithfulness or for, uh, for unholy living, even though we profess the name of Jesus. Peter says, use God's holy judgment as motivation for conducting yourselves in holiness. But also he points to Christ's ransom payment for your sin. Look at verses 18 and 19. Knowing you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. As believers, as followers of Jesus in this world, we walk in reverent fear of God, as Peter says, knowing we have been ransomed by Christ. We have been ransomed from sin and death. That word ransom has uh, slavery, uh, slavery and freedom implications tied to it. A ransom is a price that was paid by a, a bond servant, by someone who had sold themselves uh, to an individual to work off a debt or, uh, or just to, as, a, as a commitment of work for a several number of years. Uh, uh, so slavery in that sense, I just lost my train of thought. It's coming back to me. So 
The, these, this is the image that Peter's employing. A slave who is indebted to a master is freed by a, a cost of some sort. He purchases his freedom. He works off his freedom over many years. Peter uses this image to say you were once slaves to sin with a debt you could not pay. But Jesus has ransomed you from that. He's paid the price for your freedom. And he's paid the price not with perishable things, worthless things like gold or silver. See what Peter's doing there? He's exaggerating. Obviously, gold and silver are uh, things of monetary value, are things that, that are not necessarily perishable. Gold and silver last a long time. But Peter calls them imperishable. He calls them worthless in comparison to what we have been uh, ransomed with. That is Jesus' precious blood, like that of a perfect sacrifice. Christian, how does it make you feel to know that you have been bought, you have been purchased from sin and death, not with such petty things like money, but with life? That Christ gave his life to ransom you. He gave his blood to cleanse you of your sin. Peter says, conduct yourselves in reverent fear, knowing what was given for your spiritual freedom. Use in your own mind the weight of Christ's sacrifice to motivate you for holy living. Thirdly, so motivation for holy living, God's holy judgment, Christ's ransom payment. Thirdly, God's perfected plan. His perfected plan of redemption, verses 20 and 21. He, Peter speaking of Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. That God would send his son to pay for the sins of man was foreknown by God before the creation of the cosmos. That's what verse 20 means. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God knew before he ever said, let there be light, he was going to send his son to pay for the sins of sinful man. And the very fact that nothing from eternity past to the present day has thwarted, has, has foiled God's perfect redemption plan, but that it was all brought to completion in Jesus' death for our sin, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension to heaven, all of that should serve as further motivation to place your faith and your hope in God, our Father, the author of our salvation, as we revere his awesome and wonderful grace. If nothing can stop God's perfect salvation plan... How much more than can we trust in him to help us walk holy lives? Knowing that he who has planned your rescue from sin, from eternity past, before ever you committed a sin, before ever a sin in the world was, was committed, God planned to save you. And he just planned to do it. He executed that plan. He sent his son as, as he determined to live perfectly like we can't, to die in our place to be raised from the dead so you can be saved. Your salvation is secure. God has seen to it. Use that as motivation for conducting yourselves in a holy manner in this life. So then, in response to this, what, what do we do? How do we, how do we continue to shape our mind, to shape our thinking for holy living? I think by this, from what we see in these last verses, that we need to, in order to live a holy life, pleasing to God, Place all of our worship, all of our trust, all of our hope in the God that has seen to our salvation. All of your worship, all of your trust, all of your hope. Put it in him to live a holy life. Now, look, I could preach several sermons, a series of sermons on uh, six tips, seven tips for living a holier life. 
right? But all of those are just based in my own wisdom and my own capability. And I'm still relatively young, so you shouldn't trust my wisdom, maybe just yet. But I can point us to what God says to do in order to live a holy life. Worship God. Know who he is. Revere him as holy. Trust him. That's what he says to do. Trust him and hope in him. You want to live a holy life? Hope in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Look forward to the resurrection. Worship God on a daily basis, reminding yourself of the wonder of the the gospel, that God would send his son to die for you, that Jesus would give his blood for the purchase of your salvation. That's motivation for holy living. I could give you all sorts of ways to, to make different or better choices in your life, but none of them are better than choosing to do these things. Worshiping God, trusting in, in the Son, placing your hope in the resurrection. This is the game plan we go back to time and time again, every day, every hour, every moment, as we strive to live in holiness. We don't trust in men to make us holy. We don't hope for stuff to make us happy. And we don't follow our own will or our own desires in pursuing holiness. Let me say all those things again, but in a positive sense. Positively, we trust Jesus to save us. We hope for the resurrection, which is the finishing of our salvation. It's the icing on the cake of everything that God, through the Holy Spirit, is doing and transforming your heart today. And we submit our lives to God and to his word with lives of worship, reminding ourselves of who he is and of what we used to be and what he has called us to do. Church, Christian, be holy because God, your Father, is holy. Prepare your minds for action by setting your hope on the salvation that is coming. Conduct yourselves in fear in this life, this short life, knowing what God has done to save you and knowing that he has saved you perfectly. Let's pray.